Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact podcast for the service management and support industry, brought to you by HDI. Smarter service, better business, HDI, on the web at thinkhdi.com. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode 21 of SpotCast is an interview with Julie Moore. Julie is a dynamic, engaging change agent who brings authenticity, integrity, and passion to practitioners worldwide. Through her books, articles, speaking, consulting, and teaching, her purpose is to spark change in the world with thought-provoking dialogue and interaction. Julie is currently pursuing her PhD in Management and Organizational Leadership in Information Systems and Technology from the University of Phoenix. She received her Master's in Education from the University of Phoenix and her Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from the Ohio State University. She's an ITIL expert, certified help desk director, and certified governance IT professional. Julie captivates audiences at conferences worldwide on topics of authentic leadership, business strategy, knowledge management, organizational culture, and innovation. Julie, thanks so much for talking to me today. Great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. At Service Management World, one of your breakout sessions is called Living in the Disruption Economy. Our customers are screaming for change and we're still not listening. How does disruption happen and why do you think some businesses are unable to see the writing on the wall when disruption is headed their way? You know, um, I think disruption has uh, a place in almost any organization if people are willing and ready to seize that moment. I, I think this is an incredible time in our industry. We have an opportunity to kind of reinvent ourselves and look at things from a completely different perspective. But often it takes bringing a new company with a new idea into a vertical market where it uh, challenges the pre-existing norms of the way that we've always done business. And probably the most iconic one that I can think of off the top of my head is the Uber and Lyft and what it did to the taxi industry. Um, you know, ta taxis have existed as the standard method of transportation in big cities. When you're traveling, you know, you, you, you find the local phone number you wait for the taxi or you flag one down in the street if, if you live in a or you're visiting a bigger city where that's accepted. Um, but it was never a great experience, right? You always had the gruff driver, the one that never spoke to you, maybe a driver that uh, was from a different culture or uh, ethical background that you may not have been able to fully understand. Um you know, you always had to know where you were, what phone number, and then there was the the push for you to give money, cash, to the driver instead of using a, a credit card, which has been an established norm in society for decades now. And along came two companies, obviously one pre predated the other, that basically looked at that model and said, we can reinvent the way that this works. Um, technology is clearly a part of that. There's no doubt that the app uh, brings a lot of that innovation. But they also looked at that model and said, where are all the friction points? What do we not like about the experience of using taxis? And essentially, they just kind of flipped this model upside down, right? I don't need to know where I am in a city anymore. The, the GPS on my phone, a, a technology that we've had now for decades. Right? It, it knows where I am. 
it can give that information to the driver so that I don't have to know the precise address or location where I am. I no longer have to exchange money, right? I can just pay via the app. The, the, the friction in the taxi model is completely gone. Almost always when I'm driving in an Uber or Lyft, I have a great conversation with the driver. They're rated on their customer service. Um, they're given, you know, so many stars ranking and you'll know immediately when your driver is, is connected to you whether or not, um, you know, they've got a high ranking within the system. So there's a collaborative way in which we're also being able to provide feedback. I don't ever remember a taxi company ever asking me if I cared or liked or, or enjoyed my experience in a taxi drive in a in a taxi car. So when we look at the way that this is disrupted, there are some very common elements. One of the key factors in all of that is letting go of this pre-established norm. And you hear this all the time in organizations. It doesn't. They don't come right out and say, "But this is the way that we've always done it." There's this tremendous amount of resistance happening within the organization to put, you know, the brakes on any of these clearly innovative ideas that people are coming up with. They're, the gap between where they are and where that innovation lie seems so significant. And to be honest, we've had so many project failures and and project overruns and less than positive results in delivering, uh, you know, uh, new innovative ideas in the environment. We shy away from something that's so dramatically different. Um, so letting go of our ideas of the way that the business has to run, that's one of the most difficult things that customers um, struggle with. Um, the new and innovative technologies are there. They're, they're there for the leveraging. They're, they're there to procure, to, to implement. It's the least of our hurdles, really. Um, you know, and if I go back to Uber and Lyft, it was also not just letting go of the way that things had always been done. They came up with a very innovative business model and the way that they delivered that service that consciously eliminated so many of the barriers that you would experience within in the, you know, the traditional way of, of getting that transportation. Another thing that it did, and this is also a very vital component of it, is that we actually, as consumers of that service, are part of it, right? They connected with us as a customer. They gave us, you know, your first ride is free. I remember the first time I took a lift, uh, my driver was also the first time that they had done, uh, I was their first passenger and they were my first driver and we laughed. I mean, <laughs> I don't ever remember laughing with a taxi driver quite like that. It was... Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm, but there's a way that these services are also connecting with their customers. Um, and, you know, that's a very important part of it. Um, there's a there's an amount of personalization. You feel like you're contributing to the overall positive effect by ranking, by tipping, by uh, you, you're able to provide feedback into the system that helps that company determine who are their best drivers and, you know, who might not necessarily make the grade. Um, you know, and there's sometimes with these new innovative approaches, there are difficulties in, you know, the way that services are delivered. A lot of cities put all kinds of regulations in place because one or two drivers, you know, did something inappropriate and they felt like it wasn't regulated enough. You know, but I've been on plenty of taxi drives that I could have easily, you know, reported and said, hey, this was less than ideal circumstances. Um, I'm not 
you know, talking light of those experiences, but to say that there's no perfect delivery system and that I think one of the keys of these disruptive models is they've been open to feedback. And so they've modified their approach and changed because they know how important the customer is to that community. So if I, if I look at all of those things, right, letting go of pre-established norms, these new and innovative technologies, new business delivery models, customization, putting the customer at the front, that's a lot of change. And so there's good reasons why a lot of companies are kind of sitting there and going, you know, how do we, how do we make that significant of a transformation? It's not just simply applying a technology in the environment. It's about our people. It's about studying and understanding our customers in, in a very in-depth way. Put ourselves literally like Uber and Lyft did in the passenger seat. What is it that we don't like and how can we get rid of it? Um, and that type of change takes leadership. It takes collaboration and it takes knowledge, right? Knowledge of who your customers are, what it is that they want from an outcome, you know, your operational costs, where your expenditures are. You have to have good quantifiable information that helps to drive that strategy so that you can engage and truly disrupt. Do you think that was an issue with the taxi industry that because they didn't have any kind of customer interface that they just lacked all that data? They didn't know who was good. They didn't know what how satisfied their customers were, et cetera? You know, the, it was so much more than that. The, the, the taxi industry had existed for literally decades and decades and decades unevolving. It was the same service over and over and over again. So any industry where you keep delivering the same service over and over again, you have to recognize at some point that you're you're headed for disruption. It can't physically stay the same way. Someone's going to look at it and say, I can solve these problems. But when you look at the taxi industry, there were a lot of things that were wrong with it. It wasn't just about not putting the customer first. It's the whole you know, concept of buying a medallion. And, you know, there was so much perceived corruption in the whole thing um, where the business was the focus as opposed to the customer. So that long-standing way in which taxi drivers became taxi drivers where got the legal paperwork in place to actually become a, a taxi driver. There were so many things in, in place to regulate and moderate that industry that it almost put handcuffs on it from ever changing. And so you come in with a completely different business model that avoided a lot of that, right? I mean, you don't have to get a medallion to be an Uber or a Lyft driver. You have to have a good driving record. Mm -hmm. You have to have a car that passes a, a, an inspection. There, there's just so much that an industry, how long an industry can expect to exist without change. And and I used Uber and Lyft as an example because it's probably one of the most visible ones. But, I mean, if you take higher education, right, let's look at the model that the University of Phoenix brought in. They basically said, first of all, we are going to flip this upside down and we're going to run a for-profit model. Up to then, for-profit models were traditionally viewed as associate's degrees. You know, you go, you could become a construction worker, a plumber, an electrician, you know, and, and even some certifications within the IT field. You paid for that. It was a for-profit model. Um, but the University of Phoenix came in and they basically said, look, we're going to provide higher education degrees all the way up to doctorates for profit. 
And their distinguishing factor was it's not that we just put it online, right? There were technologies available to universities long before the University of Phoenix came along for distance learning. The key was that the programs themselves were built from the ground up to serve adult learners. So you have people that are working during the day, they're raising families at night, but they still want the possibility of going and getting an education. And for me, it was the only path I could take, being on the on the road constantly in, in airports and hotels and taxis. You know, I, I wasn't able to attend a, a standard brick and mortar. And when I wanted to go back to school, there were very, very few options available to me at that time. And it happened to be this for-profit model. But I could study at three o'clock in the morning and still advance my learning and feel like I was bettering myself and my knowledge and expanding my views. Yeah, it was a for-profit model, but it worked for me. Now, obviously, you know, that model got into a little bit of trouble with the higher fees and whether or not those degrees were really comparable to a, you know, an accredited university, even though University of Phoenix had accreditation. But Look at how it changed the higher education uh, across the board. You add in that reduced federal funding, reduced state funding, and now universities are in this highly competitive model where they have to uh, essentially market to people that we are a university for you to choose. I mean, I, I went to one in, in South Dakota, I think it was, where I saw signs in Iowa advertising that you could get in-state fees if you went to their school. Didn't matter if you lived in Iowa, right? They were going to give you in-state fees. The competition is there. And I don't know any higher education institute that I have worked with in the last two years who doesn't engage in an online strategy now or is developing the mechanisms to go to an online strategy. And you see things like executive MBAs being put online um, from reputable universities, I know I constantly get advertisements from MIT for their AI program. <laughs> um, so you you see how that disrupted a market that had not changed in decades, right? But the lack of funding, this new player into the mix that completely changed the model and flipped it upside down. And now you see how change is being, um, and many universities are adapting. And that's the key is that you have to be, you have to have a want and a desire to stay up with the most modern concepts in your industry. And in this one, because the students are predominantly what is driving revenue in universities. They, they don't have federal funding or state funding like they used to. The student fees are really important to the livelihood of the university. So that means competition for students. Um, and that meant meeting the needs of adult learners who are not going to school fresh out of high school. They're going back for advanced degrees and recognizing that that is a market that could be served if you put your content online and, and develop the, the ability to do so. So it's not just something like a, a high-tech firm coming in and completely revolutionizing uh, you know, an industry, this is happening across m many vertical markets. Um, you and I sat on a panel at, in, in uh, the, the HDI conference, the executive forum, where a young man, you know, was, was uh, asking us a question about um, how, do, how do we defend against the onslaught of projects? And I don't have limited resources. And, and I remember the gentleman was in, was in healthcare. 
And I look at healthcare completely different as a consumer. The the business side of healthcare is revolutionizing, right? They they've put electronic records in place, but now you have the ability to use an app on your phone to connect to your records, to your prescriptions, to your doctor, send in images, uh, pick up your lab results. They are putting the patient at the forefront, but there's a lot of cost savings that go into that as well. There's fewer phone calls. There's the ability to, to better manage the interface with the customer. Um, you know, so lots of different vertical markets are, are being impacted in, by disruption in small and significant ways. And so you have to be, you know, an organization absolutely has to be able to see that staying and trying to do the same things over and over and over again is not going to serve the long-term strategy of the organization. Kodak springs to mind uh, doing the same thing over and over again. They were making all their money on developing film. They had the technology for digital photography and did not pursue it because they were making too much money elsewhere. And that's, I think, one of the things that gets in the way for sure. Let's move inside the business for a second and say... I'm working at a company that could conceivably be disrupted. That's one of these companies that does the same thing the same way it was doing it 15, 20 years ago. Uh, how how do I see disruption coming and, and what should I be looking for and, and what can I do? Well, I think we're still in the same place that we've always been in in information technology as a as a profession. And that is we've been facing rapid change forever. I mean, since it ever existed, there's just been this constant evolution of technology, more powerful, you know, more, um, more compact, smaller devices that can do amazing things. So you can't be in this profession and not say to yourself, hey, I need to be thinking about the skill sets that I need, not today, but, you know, two to five years down the road so that you can always make sure that you're ready for the next big thing that happens. Um, I sat on a panel uh, just a couple weeks ago in in the, the Bay Area, and we had this exact discussion around uh, what does this mean for jobs and skill sets. And one of the panelists made the comment that, you know, level one is slowly dissipating. It's not that... Um, we're letting go of these people. We're moving and positioning them into more value-added work where, you know, they're getting the education and the training and, and what they need to become level two or level three, uh, you know, contributors within the organization. But what they saw is the, the significant gap was where do we go to get the experience that's necessary at level one? right? Learning about the customers, learning the basics about customer service, understanding services and technology. That introduction is a great place for a career to start. The, the problems that you face are not as uh, complex. It may be highly repetitive, but it does give you the basis and the time to develop a skill set that gives you that level of professionalism that's ready to move up. So where do, where do we get that experience now? If a lot of that repetitive work is automated, either using artificial intelligence or developing workflows that that eliminate the need for humans to actually do that work, so I don't I don't think it's that 
our jobs are significantly changing. I cannot remember a time in my career where I wasn't always thinking about, okay, what's coming next? And how can I expand my knowledge in new ways that will serve me two to three years down in my career? Um, as managers, it's vital for us to be doing that for our staff at all times anyway. Um, you know, I'm working with a, a couple customers that have, have been putting their level one staff through PowerShell training because they recognize that you know coding is a skill set that can be used to help eliminate a lot of the repetitive work that happens. And if you have staff that understand how to do that coding and, and have the right mindset for it, a lot of that repetitive work is identified when you're at level one. And if they have the skill sets to then code it, even better, you know, you, you've put the, the coders right at the place where they can identify that types of those types of repetitive transactional work. And just one more comment from that panel is that another woman said, you know, we did this 10 years ago. We knew and saw the writing on the wall that everything was turning to code and that it was important to transition our skill sets at that time in preparation for that inevitable outcome. Um, and I look at that and, and I say, that's the leadership identifying, you know, hey, we are headed towards disruption and I don't want to be caught with the wrong people and the wrong skill sets. I want to make sure that my people are ready to engage in that strategy and keeping their skill sets moving in that the, in the direction that will allow them to have the knowledge to support that type of disruption. Speaking of disruption and speaking of forward-looking and uh, changes in, in level one specifically, uh, we have chatbots popping up everywhere. Some are very effective and some are kind of abysmal. Uh, they don't give information back that's particularly useful. They're very limited in the number of questions they can answer, etc. So based on your experience, having built one, you built Sherlock, your knowledge bot, what does it take to make a good, effective, and helpful chat bot? Well, uh, let me back up for just a second and kind of discuss the, the reason why Sherlock came, uh, came about. You know, there was just so much hype in the industry about chatbots. Um, and, and I, you know how marketing is some days you get these marketing things coming in through Facebook and one came in through messenger, how they knew to send me a message. I have no idea, but you know, the intelligence of Facebook, um, and it was about chatbots. So I took this online course. It was like three hours and it was all about chatbots. And one of the things that came out of that, just this mini course was that I could gain access to these systems and build one myself. The, the The cost of entry was zero. The platform that I used was WordPress. The the um, um, the underlying chatbot and the the artificial intelligence layer was provided free by Google. So I think that is the first thing that organizations need to understand is that the cost to entry to begin your experimentation and figure out what is this and what does it mean to our organization is very, very low. Now, I wouldn't be making investments as of yet. I would try to figure out, you know, what approach you want to take with chatbots, because as you said, some are successful and some are, are hopelessly not. Um, so that's how Sherlock came came to be, right? I'm a, I'm a consultant, so I don't necessarily I'm not in an environment, a day to day environment where I could see something like this implemented. So I said, you know, what is what is this like? Um, and one of the things that I immediately found out was that it's pretty easy to set one of these up. Five minutes, I had a chat bot, bot up and running. 
the work is really around embedding the knowledge into the system. And the more existing knowledge that you have, you know, uh, information, um, one of the, the key things that I'm looking at right now is how easy it is, to, is it to take KCS knowledge and put it into a bot? Because KCS knowledge is captured in the customer context. It seems like ripe for the pickings because a chat bot needs to have a conversation like it would be talking to an actual customer. Um, but it's just simply not that easy. There's a big difference between building a table of rules that if you ask this question, give this answer. If you ask this question, give this answer. Um, if, if a question is unknown and it has these three or four keywords, answer with this. That's just embedding knowledge that you have today about your customers, how they ask questions, and what are the typical answers to that. But if you look at a conversation, the unbelievable number of, of places that a conversation can go. That's one of the reasons why these chat bots do not work very well. Uh, there's an example that I use in another presentation where, um, you know, a customer call uh, is using a chat bot and says, uh, you know, I need to reset my password, but I don't have my account number. And the chat bot responds with, well, log in and get your account number. The, the inability to understand that you've hit this block, right, where can't get logged in because I don't have my password, so I can't get my account number. You know, there's, there's obviously, if you see this often enough as you're following the chat history, you can build the conversation in uh, to, to help handle that. So one of the reasons I think that chatbots don't perform well is they're launched way before uh, the knowledge and, and the interactions are captured enough within the system for them to work effectively. So you get caught in these loops where it just doesn't understand. And, it, and you know, it's kind of like asking uh, Alexa a new question and it says, hmm, I don't know that one yet. Um, if enough people ask that question, eventually that's going to be programmed into those rule tables that if you ask that question, it's going to answer. The other part of this is that we think we keep calling this artificial intelligence. The rules-based system is just knowledge. It's pairing up of keywords and phrases and saying, oh, if this comes up, you know, put this answer out there. The artificial intelligence is where new things are introduced and the system can actually understand it without having been programmed to understand it. Um, the more knowledge that's put into the system, the more capable the system is for that artificial intelligence aspect of it, right? Because it, it has more information to make judgment from, uh, you know, looking for similarities in, in what's already been captured. So I, 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 you know, I can't speak for why that gap exists but I do know from looking at the back end of this and working with Sherlock, there's a big difference from programming a bot with knowledge and making it conversation-like. Um, one of the, the articles that I've been working on, it seems like forever for Support World, is you know how do you make that happen? And what, what is the, an appropriate chatbot strategy that will get, to you, get you to that level where the conversations are embedded into it, not just raw knowledge? Um, and that takes... That takes oddly enough, humans to help monitor that and to step in when a conversation is not actually going the right way so that the, the end user doesn't become frustrated. They can pick up with a live agent immediately and the live agent can then look at that conversation and help to craft you know, the, the knowledge that's embedded into the tables for the bot in order to improve its success in the future of handling that.
but you know, it's there, we still need humans to help make these machines that grow in their intelligence until that intelligence layer is, is smart enough that it can interpret and, and, you know, use its code to, to make assumptions that, that are more accurate. Thank you so much. And I much appreciate talking with you today, Julie. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Roy. Thank you for listening. For more about HDI, visit us on the web at thinkhdi.com and see Support World for great content. I'm Roy Atkinson, your host for Spotcast. Until next time, take care.